Those of you that have seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof remember that vivid opening scene where Tevye sings the signature song for that movie, Tradition. And the rest of the movie develops around the tension that's created by the his allegiance to Jewish tradition and how that allegiance to the tradition of his elders came into conflict with the realities of modern life. Now that tension existed in the days of Tevya, it existed in the days of the Lord Jesus, and it exists even today. Gary Arborough sent me a copy of a Wall Street Journal article that came out several months ago that, that details the efforts that Jewish rabbis are making today to reconcile the demands and standards of Jewish tradition with the demands of modern life. Article began with a story about a rabbi who boarded a plane and had taken his seat there on the plane and was casually glancing out the window and noticed that a coffin was being loaded on board this El Al jetliner and immediately bolted from his seat and raced down the main aisle and out of the plane, refused to, to reboard. The reason was that from a rabbinical standpoint, a plane is a portable house. The coffin contained a dead body which was being placed into the same house in which this man was a passenger. And a rabbi is defiled by being in the same house with a dead body. There's an institute in Israel today which exists for the purpose of providing some way of dealing with these tensions. They came up with a, a solution. So every flight now, uh, El Al, in which a dead body is being carried... The coffin will be housed in a little cardboard, a cardboard crate. has to be made out of forest products. That's the one rule. And then the rabbis ruled that that little cardboard crate is a house. And that dead body is now in its own house and will not defile and contaminate those that are in the same uh, plane with it. Other issues that came up that have to do with the regulations about the Sabbath and doing work on the Sabbath. Most of our refrigerators, for instance operate with motors and compressors which are activated when you open the refrigerator door. That will briefly raise the temperature as warm air floods in and the thermostat will kick on, the motor will crank up to drop the temperature back down to the desired level. This creates a problem in rabbinical circles because when you open the refrigerator door on the Sabbath, activate the motor and compressor, you are doing work. You are generating energy. And this was considered verboten, according to the rabbis. So this institute developed a microchip that you can insert into your refrigerator, which you can program to automatically turn your motor and compressor on and off on the Sabbath so you will not violate any regulations and can still get after some nice cold uh, cherries or watermelon or whatever on the Sabbath. Another problem had to do with making phone connections. Uh, when you pick up a phone, you create an electrical connection. You therefore are doing work. You are generating work on the Sabbath. This created a big problem. Couldn't make any phone calls on Saturday. So this institute developed a phone that now has a steady current flowing through the phone system. And when you pick up the phone, you actually interrupt the circuit rather than connect the circuit. So now you can transact phone calls on the Sabbath. One of the ones that was most intriguing to me was the keeping of hospital records created a conflict with Jewish tradition because the rabbis interpreted the law to prohibit any kind of permanent writing on the Sabbath. This was a problem. How do you keep hospital records for somebody who's admitted or discharged or treated on the Sabbath? Well, the Institute had the answer. Disappearing ink. I'm serious. They developed an ink that is used 
for record-keeping purposes on Saturday, which disappears by Tuesday. There's no permanent written record, but that gives you Sunday and Monday, see, to recopy those records uh, to keep on a permanent basis. So that issue of the conflict between Jewish tradition and contemporary life was as much a reality today as it was in the days of Jesus. Now, not all traditions are bad. Some traditions are good. Flossing your teeth is a good tradition. I have a tradition. I floss my teeth twice a year, the night before I go to the dentist and the night after I go to the dentist. It's a good tradition. But what Jesus is concerned about in in Mark chapter 7, the passage we're going to look at this morning, is when the tradition of men conflicts with the teaching of Scripture. When the traditions of men conflict with revelation from God. When the traditions of men conflict with the commands of God. And then... Jesus had a real problem with tradition. A uh, expositor of the 19th century said this, Tradition was the most constant, the most persistent, the most dogged, the most utterly devilish opposition the Master encountered. As we work our way through Mark chapter 7, we will see that there are three reasons why Jesus was so resistant to tradition when it conflicted with the the teaching of the word. The first we will discover in verses 1 through 7 is that tradition makes hypocrites out of us. And Jesus was resistant to tradition because it leads to hypocrisy. Secondly, in verses 8 through 13, Jesus resisted tradition because it leads to disobedience. And finally, in verses 14 through 23, Jesus was resistant to tradition because it says it misses the whole point. It overlooks the fundamental problem in human life. It cannot touch the fundamental problem in human life. And therefore, Jesus says, I fight tradition in all of its forms, particularly when it takes the form of, of legalism. And that's what he's dealing with in this passage. The scene is set for us in verse 1 of chapter 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus. The name Pharisees means the separated ones. They prided themselves on living a life which was separate from the world around them. And they had developed an extensive series of of external standards and patterns of behavior which were designed to mark them out as distinct and separate from the world around them. Uh, They were the legalists of the first century who had developed a certain set of external religious standards and then imposed those on God's people and made those the mark of spiritual maturity. And Jesus resisted them. There were teachers of the law in this group that gathered around Jesus. These were the scholars in the law, those who were well-versed in the Scriptures, who interpreted the Scriptures for the people. And what Jesus observed about them is that these teachers of the law had a way of twisting the Scriptures to excuse blatant disobedience. That they had devoted their energies to making the Scriptures say something exactly the opposite of what the Scriptures plainly and clearly taught. They twisted the Scriptures to justify disobedience to the clear commands of God. They were the Scripture twisters of their day. Those who distorted the Word to excuse disobedience. And they became the enemies of Jesus. Notice they'd come from Jerusalem. According to verse 1, the nerve center of the nation now had been alerted to the presence of this adversary. And so these teachers of the law had had traveled from the cosmopolitan center of the nation's life to this remote village in the hill country of Galilee to confront their adversary. 
And this is what they saw in verse 2 when they gathered around Jesus. They saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. Debbie has spent the better part of her adult life trying to keep my seven-year-old son from discovering that this verse is in the Bible. That the disciples of Jesus ate food with unwashed hands. We've got a Navigator memory pack designed specifically for kids, and we're working through it with our children. And I looked all the way through there, and this verse just is not in there. I don't know why. But what obviously Jesus is talking about here, what Mark is alerting our attention to, is not a hygiene problem. It wasn't that the disciples ate with hands that were physically dirty. They ate with hands that were ceremonially or ritually impure. Mark explains for his Gentile audience in verses 3 and 4 some of these additional ceremonial washing rituals. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. That will be a key phrase in this chapter. When they came from the marketplace, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. The standpoint of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is that when a Jew, an observant Jew, went into the marketplace and had contact with Gentiles, had contact with non-observant Jews, that, that that Jew contracted ceremonial defilement. He had become contaminated. He had become defiled by his contact with the worldlings. And therefore, when a Jew came from the marketplace and into his home to partake of a meal, he came into the room with hands that had been contaminated, had been polluted, by contact with the world. And therefore they developed an elaborate hand-washing ceremony to make your hands fit and clean and pure and once again able to eat. And what the Pharisees observed about Jesus' disciples is that he taught them to totally ignore that tradition of the elders. Here was a pattern, an observance of religious life that had been handed down from one generation to the next, handed over to be observed. And here Jesus taught his disciples to ignore that completely. And they were outraged by this and confronted Jesus on this. The ceremony that he's talking about was actually fairly elaborate, and this is what a Jew is required to do each time he came in from, from the outside world. The, it would begin with dipping from stone water pots that would be kept near the front door. When Jesus went to that wedding in, in John chapter 2 and turned the water into wine, it was probably the water for purification in these huge stone water pots that was used for this ritual cleansing that, that he used. The Jew would begin by holding his uh, hands cupped like this with his fingertips upward, and he would ladle out some water from this purification jar and pour it over his hands, and the water would run down his fingers and down the backside of his hand and down to the wrist to cleanse that hand. And then he would dip with a ladle and do the same thing with his right hand. And the water would pour down to the wrist and cleanse that hand. And then he would make a fist out of his right hand and clean the hollow of his left hand. And make a fist out of his left hand and clean the hollow of his right hand. Now that created an additional problem. Now the water that you had used to cleanse the hands, it itself had become contaminated. And it had to be washed off. And so the final step in the ceremony was to place your hand downward and ladle out some water and pour it over the hand. It would run down off the hand and, and wash the unclean water from your hand. You would do the same thing with the right hand. And now you were clean and prepared to eat. And this was the tradition that the disciples simply ignored. Came in, grabbed the life boy, washed their hands, sat down, dived right in. And Jesus, or Mark, points out that there were many other 
ritual washings like this that had to do with pitchers and, and vessels and uh, pots that would be used to prepare food. And there were different regulations, 12 different sections in the Mishnah, each devoted to how you ceremonially cleanse a vessel that is used in the preparation or the consuming of food. For instance, if you had a table, you serve food on a table with three legs, that three-legged table could become contaminated, and there was a ritual by which you could cleanse that table. If one of the legs broke, that table could no longer serve as a table, it couldn't be contaminated. If a second leg broke, uh, it could not be contaminated because it could not be used as a table. But if the third leg broke, then that could be used as a board, and that once again could become contaminated. There was a separate section on how you were to cleanse something like that. And Jesus taught his disciples to ignore all of these religious rituals and ceremonies. And so the Pharisees challenged him on this in verse 5. The Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Why don't your disciples, they say, allow the tradition of the elders, this, this humanly derived teaching about what the spiritual life ought to look like. Why don't you insist that your disciples use this as their governing norm for life? Jesus replied in verse 6 out of the uh, Dale Carnegie School of how to win friends and influence people. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain Their teachings are but rules taught by men. The word that's translated was right in verse 6 is a word that literally means beautifully. Jesus says, Isaiah beautifully prophesied about you hypocrites. He nailed you right on the button. And he addresses these Pharisees and these scribes as hypocrites. The word hypocrite is an interesting word. It originally meant a play actor. It referred to somebody who played a part uh, on a stage. My mother-in-law buys season tickets to the Idaho Shakespeare Festival every year, and I've noticed some of the same actors that that act in these Shakespearean productions also appear on television commercials for the Idaho Lottery, dressed up in completely different costumes, playing completely different parts. I have no idea what these people are like in private, because every time I see them, I see them playing a part. They're acting, they're pretending to be something that that they are not in real life. We've had a raging debate in our home over the last several weeks about whether Kevin Costner can act. And uh, my contention is that he can't, because all he can be is Kevin Costner. You know, he's comfortable being Kevin Costner. He doesn't actually act. He just is himself, and he, he gets away with it because he's a likable guy. Debbie's convinced that he's a good actor. Now, Pee Wee Herman, now there, is an actor. <laughs> At least you hope he is an actor. You know? Because he pretends to be something that he is not in private life. Now, Jesus says that's fine on the stage, but in real life, that is a terrible, terrible place to be, to pretend to be something that you are not. And this is the first reason Jesus was so opposed to legalism. It's legalism because it focuses its attention on external standards of religious behavior and makes them central and makes them paramount, and makes them the measuring stick of spiritual maturity. Legalism leads us into hypocrisy because it creates the possibility that we can think of ourselves as righteous and as upright 
because we conform to these certain external standards of, of behavior, whether it's church attendance or devotions or, or Bible reading or tithing or some other external standard of, of religious behavior, dress on Sunday or forms of worship or whatever, while at the very same time our hearts are distant and far from God. And Jesus says any approach to the religious life that concentrates on these external standards will eventually make hypocrites out of people. Did it to the Jews? Jesus says it'll do it to us. Their lips they use to honor me, he says, but their hearts are far from me. Might have gotten a, a minor taste of what Jesus was talking about in our own worship service this morning. This probably happened to you as it, as it happened to me somewhere during the time when we were singing. Your, your mind might have wandered off to something you're going to do later today or something that happened to you in this past week. And there for that brief amount of time, with your lips you were honoring God, but your heart was someplace else. Now Jesus says that's no problem if it happens occasionally or accidentally. That's a human natural part of life. But if that becomes a pattern of life for us, then that is hypocrisy. Where, where our lips and our actions uh, portray us as people who worship God and love God, but inwardly our hearts are resistant and stubborn and distant and unresponsive and hard-hearted toward the things of God. And so Jesus says, that's why I oppose legalism. It turns us into hypocrites. I remember reading a story once about an, uh, a Muslim who set out on a murderous pursuit of an enemy of his, knife raised, chasing him through the city streets, when suddenly the call to prayer came, and he immediately dropped to his knees, pulled out his prayer mat, and, and said his prayers, and then as soon as the prayers were over, he rolled up his mat, pulled out his knife, and started chasing the guy again. You know, A total lack of consistency between the words he was uttering on his knees and, and the behavior that immediately followed him. Jesus' warning to us is that may happen to people of other faiths, but it also can happen to us. There can be this gap between what we appear to be and what the, the image that we try to present to others and, and a distance between that and what is really true of us. Now, Jesus goes on in verses 8 through 13 to indicate a second and even more serious problem is that the traditions of men will eventually lead us into disobedience to the commands of God. You have let go, verse 8, of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, verse 9, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Notice the contrast in verses 8 and 9. The contrast is between the commands of God and the traditions of men. Verse 9, the commands of God are contrasted with your own traditions. Notice the word pictures that Jesus uses. In verse 8 he says, You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. Jesus says if the traditions of men, if what men say about the religious life, if what men say about life, if what men say about church life, if that becomes paramount to us, if we develop an allegiance to that, that eventually we are going to be faced with a choice. We are going to have to choose between the traditions of men and the commands of God. And what Jesus is aware of is the powerful, addictive nature of tradition. And how often when we're faced with that choice, we will choose the traditions of men 
and let go of or ignore or reject the commands of God. And that's why legalism and tradition was a poison that Jesus saw that had to be, had to be rooted out uh, of the spiritual life of his people. Uh, occasionally we'll have a meal down in the family room, and I have discovered that I usually can't carry everything down to the family room in one trip. So I'll fill both hands, and I'll realize I've got too much to carry. And what I will have to do is set something aside so I can hold on to something else. Now, Jesus says if we do that, if we try to hold on to the commands of God, to the Word of God, and hold on to the teachings of men, eventually we're going to have to set one of those down in order to cling to the other. And Jesus says, be sure that it is the commands of God that you cling to. Verse 9, he says, you have set aside the commands of God. Different word picture. If you've ever rearranged furniture in your home, perhaps you have a a lamp, an end table and a lamp sitting in some place in the room where you want the couch to go. In order to put that couch there, you have to set aside the lampstand and the lamp in order to set up the couch in its place. And Jesus says the same thing will happen to us if we try to cling to the tradition of men and cling to the Scriptures. Eventually we will come to the place where we will have to set one of those aside or the other. Jesus says, be sure that what you set aside is the traditions of men and not the commands of God. The word that's translated a fine way in verse 9 is the same word that was translated was right in verse 6. He says, you, you, you beautifully set aside the commands of God. You're clever and crafty and slick in doing this. He says, you guys are beautiful in the way you do this. And he illustrates it in verses 10 and shows how the teachers of the law had managed to find a way to excuse outright disobedience to the commands of God. For Moses said, verse 10, Honor your father and your mother. Clear, direct, unequivocal. unequivocal. Children owe their parents as a matter of obedience to God, honor and respect. The scriptures are clear. And the scriptures say anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Anyone who speaks evilly of his mother or father or speaks evilly to his mother or father must be put to death. There's the answer to the juvenile delinquency problem in one sentence. And Jesus' point was at this time in the life of Israel, this law was in force. It was still binding. God had said, anyone who speaks evilly to his parents should be put to death. But, verse 11, you say, and there's an emphasis in the Greek text on that word you, but you say that if a man says to his father or mother, here is the evil thing that the Pharisees excused a man for saying to his father or mother rather than to putting him to death for it, if you, but you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. This korban that Jesus alludes to was a method that the Pharisees had developed to set certain money off limits to others. Now, the slick thing about it was you didn't actually have to give this money to God. All you had to do was to say that that money is korban. That money is devoted to God. Therefore, it is out of your reach. It is unavailable to you. So you had tax-sheltered annuities or money market accounts. You could simply say, all that is korban. 
That's given to God. You didn't actually have to give it to God. You just had to say that it belonged to Him. And then if your aging parents were in need of material help or financial assistance, the Pharisees encouraged the Jews to say, I'm sorry, Pops, I could help you, but all of the money I have that I could use to help you is korban. It's been devoted to God. I'm sorry, I can't help you. In fact, the teachers of the law won't let me help you. They forbid me to help you. And so this is what Jesus observed. They had found a way, see, in the name of God to excuse people from their responsibility to obey God. And Jesus says that eventually is the problem. If we listen to what men say about life instead of listening to what the scriptures say about life, eventually we will find ourselves disobeying clear commands of the scripture. Back in PBC in the early 70s when the Jesus movement was in full swing, it was a college community and uh, many college students began coming to Peninsula Bible Church and they would come in shorts and cutoffs and, and without wearing shoes. And this was offensive to some of the more staid uh, people in that community who came to church in three-piece uh, suits. And so they raised this issue with the leadership of the church. These are not our kind of people. They shouldn't come to church without uh, barefooted, without wearing shoes. And so the leadership of the church, I, I thought, handled it very much. said, okay, well, listen, why don't you go to the scriptures and see if anywhere in the Bible you can find a rule that says people have to wear shoes to church. You find that, you come back, show us that in the scriptures, and we'll start making them wear shoes to church. I went home. They couldn't find it. There was a tradition of men that said people have to wear shoes to church. The command of God didn't say anything about that. And so those people were allowed and encouraged to participate in the life of the body. Now we see this kind of scripture twisting that the teachers of the law are guilty of here and many other respects in, in the church in America. Where religious leaders, people who are teachers of the scripture, are giving believers, the community of believers, license to ignore the clear commands of God. For instance, on sexual immorality. Paul says very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, This is the will of God for you that you abstain from sexual immorality. Period. There is no righteous, legitimate expression of sexual intimacy outside the parameters of marriage. Period. Scriptures are absolutely clear on this. And yet, as you read in the papers, this uh, study group for one of the major denominations in our country developed an approach, an official approach, which they offered to that denomination, which made immorality in all of its forms justifiable and legitimate if it was carried out on the basis of justice, love, whatever in the world that means. Teachers of the law excusing this kind of direct disobedience to a clear command of Scripture. Jesus said, What God has joined together... Let no man separate. Period. That is as clear and as unequivocal as you can get. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And yet teachers of the law all across this country are justifying divorce on the basis of lack of fulfillment or other sorts of self-centered excuses for dissolving and loosing what God has joined together. Teachers of the law twisting the scriptures to allow people to disobey. The issue of homosexuality is another one. There were religious leaders, leaders in the church in our country, 
who are teaching us that homosexuality is permissible and it is appropriate and it can be healthy if the relationships are, are monogamous, if there is mutual commitment. Completely turning upside down the clear teaching of the scriptures. The feminist movement is widespread in our country. There are evangelical feminists in the church who are uh, teaching us that there are to be no role distinctions observed in the home and in the church. And this is going to be one of the key issues that the church needs to face and address in the decade of the 90s. And how the church resolves that issue of roles in the home and roles in the church will depend on whether we cling to the traditions of man and what our culture is saying or whether we cling to the commands of God. And this is what Jesus puts his finger on in verse 13. He says, In this way, by twisting the Scriptures, you nullify the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. In other words, once you begin doing this, Jesus says, you can't stop. Then lastly, in verses 14 through 23, Jesus says, The other problem with legalism and the tradition of men is that it misses the point. It overlooks the basic problem in human affairs. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, verse 14, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. What Jesus says quite straightforwardly and clearly is nothing outside a man that goes into the man can make him unclean can pollute him, can contaminate him, can create distance between him and God. Nothing, he says. The reason, Jesus says, is it does not go into the heart. It does not go into the soul of man. It goes into his stomach, into the, into the digestive tract, and then it passes out of its body. In fact, Jesus' language is much more coarse. He says in verse, uh, literally in verse 19, it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then into the toilet, into the commode, into the latrine, and then it's flushed away, it's gone. And in so doing, Jesus declared all foods clean. There are still denominations in, uh, in our country today who teach that the Levitical standards must still be observed, that there are certain foods which make us spiritually unclean. But Jesus says quite clearly and directly in verse 15, nothing could be clearer. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Now Jesus says if we focus on these external standards of behavior, what happens is that we overlook the most basic problem in human existence, and that is the problem of an evil, blackened human heart. It's possible to observe all of the religious rituals and regulations and appear to be righteous and yet be someone whose heart is wrapped up in greed and self-centeredness and selfishness and hatred and bigotry. And Jesus says that is the fundamental problem. He explains in verse 20, he went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean, what defiles us, what pollutes us. For from within, verse 21, out of men's hearts come evil. Each one of us in this room, you 
and me have within us an evil human heart. And this human heart, which has been darkened and blackened by the fall and by sin, gives impulses, gives rise to evil thoughts, Jesus says, evil intentions, evil designs. And these evil thoughts, these evil designs, give rise to evil acts. They eventually express themselves in evil acts. And Jesus lists them for us. Sexual immorality is the first. An evil heart gives rise to evil thoughts which justify sexual immorality. We love each other. Or we are planning to get married. And we justify on the basis of those evil thoughts sexual immorality. Theft. Whether it's ripping off a 7-Eleven or shoplifting a slinky from Shopco or stealing time from an employer who has paid for our time. Theft is something which comes from an evil heart justified by evil thoughts. Murder, whether it's outright homicide or whether it's the sacrificing of innocent unborn children for the sake of convenience, the taking of innocent human life. This is a product of evil thoughts which are generated by an evil heart. Adultery, which we justify with evil thoughts that I am unsatisfied or unfulfilled in my marriage and therefore I am justified in seeking fulfillment outside the marriage. And notice the word that Jesus uses for this. He calls it adultery. One of the ways we deal with this horrendous sin in our culture is to call it something else. We call it an, an, an affair. Notice how light and kind of airy that word is and how fun. It's, it, it's, it's an affair. Or we call it an extramarital fling, you know, as if it's something light and breezy. And fun. And Jesus says, let's cut through that. Let's call it what it is. It is adultery and is the product of evil thoughts which come from an evil heart. Greed. This word literally means the desire to have more. This refusal to be content with what we have. This restless desire to acquire more things and more stuff that all of us have. Jesus says that is evil. Not something to be tolerated. Not something to be coddled. Not something to be justified. But something which is evil. And defiles us. Malice. What Jesus includes in this words are those cutting things that we say to people that we know will hurt them. And we know will wound them. And we say them intending to wound them and to hurt them. We may justify that on the basis of how we ourselves have been treated or spoken to. But Jesus says we need to realize that's malice and it is evil. Deceit. Shading the truth. Telling white lies or black lies, little lies, or big lies. Or manipulating people, trying to maneuver people to get them to do what we want without being honest about what our intentions are. I've discovered in, in talking to married couples and seeking to help them that it is impossible to get an accurate assessment of that marriage by talking to just one person in that marriage. And the reason is because of deceit. That we are by nature, because of our evil fallen hearts, we have this irresistible tendency when we retell some story or some episode or some conversation to shade our retelling of the truth, to exonerate ourselves and to put the blame on someone else. Now Jesus says that's deceit. It's evil. Lewdness probably refers to sexual excesses, addictions to pornography or to, to prostitution or to rape and things like this. Envy 
which is a jealousy of what others possess, uh, the, the reputation they have or the responsibility or the privileges that they possess or the honor or the applause that they enjoy. Jesus says that's an evil thing which makes us unclean. Slander. When we say things about people who are not present that cause others to think less of them, that injure their reputation. That is evil, Jesus says, not to be justified. Arrogance. Arrogance is a subtle one. It refers to thinking of ourselves as above others, and this can be entirely internal. We may know enough to be able to say the right words to create the impression that we are modest and humble, but inwardly we are secretly comparing ourselves to others and liking what we see, congratulating ourselves and our superiority, our ability. Jesus says that's arrogance and it's evil. And the last is folly. Folly, I believe, is simply the refusal to listen to good counsel. We hear good counsel, we're given wise direction, and we insist on doing things our own way. And Jesus calls that folly and says it is evil. And these are the kind of things, see, that contaminate us. All these evils, verse 23, come from inside and make a man unclean. If I were to ask you this morning, and we were all to be honest about this, if I were to ask you this question, which person in your life gives you the most problems? I think each of us instinctively would finger a spouse or we would finger a child or we would finger uh, a member of our extended family who makes life miserable for us or someone in the workplace and we would all be wrong. Jesus says the person in your life that gives you the most trouble is you. It's me. Because each of us has within us an evil self-seeking, self-centered heart. I've been reading an excellent book recently by Larry Crabb called Men and Women Enjoying the Difference. And one of the things he suggests in there is that the key to a healthy marriage is to be more aware of our own faults, our own self-centeredness, our own weaknesses than we are with the sins and the weaknesses and the faults of our mates. That's the place we begin in mending a hurting marriage. Now, we need to realize in all of this that we are forgiven. We have black hearts, but they are forgiven black hearts. And we need to remember that. But see, Jesus doesn't say a word about that because I think he wants this to be sobering. He wants us to realize how deep-seated the problem is, not with others, but within us. And to recognize that and acknowledge that sinful twistedness that's in each one of us. And then ask God for his forgiveness and for his strength to change. Uh, let's close with a word of prayer, and then I will ask Stan to come and lead us, and Sally to lead us in a brief response to these words from the Lord. Lord, these are sobering words. Uh, we pray that you would give us hearts that are open to, to recognize our own sinfulness and our self-centeredness, that you would enable us to focus on the things that are really important in life, the issues of how we treat people, whether our heart is distant from you or soft and responsive to you. Pray that you would give us hearts that cling to the commands of God and reject the traditions of man any time they contradict or, or conflict. And give us a healthy awareness of our own sinfulness, Lord, that we might learn to appreciate the depth of your mercy and compassion and forgiveness. Amen.